Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdal. You know, like a, a personal view of mine actually is like in five to 10 years from now, I think there's like a decent possibility that like we don't even consider like ESG as a separate like topic or a separate attribution type of thing. It's like it will just be a part of how investors approach this and that they'll be in different flavors, right? Like some people will be more thorough than others. But it fundamentally, again, it's just, if you're going back in your pursuit of good returns and a good investment process, that's kind of how we view it is just like, how can we incrementally add these things that will help us be better investors or be more informed? Yeah, I like that as the reframe. Like if you are doing your, if you're really doing your diligence and doing serious analysis, whether in public markets or elsewhere, like you're probably already doing some flavor of like using the ESG framework. So that realization in and of itself, like should help people pull back from this, like, am I for ESG or anti-ESG? Like we're kind of like the people that are doing serious work in the space are, are definitely analyzing these factors as is. All right, Shani, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Hey, man, thanks for having me on. Yeah, we were just musing about how we, uh, we've we been keeping up with each other on Twitter for a while, but it's the first time that we're properly face-to-face, so always fun to make the link. Truly a pleasure. Yeah, so to to get us kicked off, we'd love to you know get a couple minutes on your background and what led you to the point where you're at today, where you're in, investing and thinking actively about a lot of different climate tech and energy uh, challenges. Yeah, totally, Nick. Thanks. Uh, so for, for the listeners, my name is Shanu Matthew. I'm currently a senior vice president and, and portfolio manager at Lazard Asset Management. So I work on our US sustainability portfolio, but the firm itself is global asset manager, manages roughly $200 billion across listed public equities, fixed income, uh, things like that. And so, you know, my role is probably half spent on understanding how topics like climate change and net zero targets impact large corporations and whether, you know, we can systematically identify climate related risks and opportunities that impact our investment theses. And then the other half now is, as you can imagine, when you cover a lot of that, there's all these hosts of new technologies and sectors and things that pop up. And so now I cover that kind of given my uh, network and expertise. And so, you know, how did I get here? I think like the Professional road is actually quite traditional. Uh, you know, I was trained in accounting and finance, studied that undergrad, worked in investment banking, worked at a startup that was acquired, did high yield credit, now public equities. <laughs> Climate itself was actually a, uh, a personal passion, weird enough, an undergrad. I'm sure like many folks that are in this space, like read apocalyptic headlines. And I was like, well, if the world's ending, I should probably know what's going on. And then the more I spent time, you know, reading as, as I'm sure most do, you realize that, you know, it's a solvable problem. It's a massively complex and challenging one, but one where you can generate, you know, huge amounts of economic value as well as impact. And so decided that to make it pretty much my priority outside of work. And so, you know, read a bunch of reports, talked to a bunch of people, would write online like yourself, not as well as you do, uh, <laughs> but that. just, you know, put it, put stuff out in the ether. And, you know, you do that long enough and do it for like 10 plus years, you end up meeting a lot of folks, you start refining your views, you start, you know, finding that area of intersection where you have expertise, which in my case was like kind of financial markets uh, and analysis with climate. And so that's what led me here today. Awesome. Yeah, love that perspective. And I think it's, you know, I'm super excited to talk to you today, because we get a lot of fantastic founders on the pod, we get, you know, sometimes policymakers and a lot of venture investors, but we don't always get folks that also have kind of that eye on, you know, the holistic capital markets, also the public markets. So definitely stoked to, to dig into some of that. But to dive right in, I'd be curious, you know, to start in the present day, and we can track things over time as we go along. But like, what are some of the key themes or trends or tech and climate and sustainability that you're spending a lot of your time like right now in 2023 analyzing and, and understanding and that you're excited about? Yeah, definitely. I don't want to 
start off by talking about the IRA because like everyone's all everyone talks about. But you know, in in a lot of ways, that is, there's a reason for that, and it's because it, you know the transformative impacts of how big those packages are mm. and tax credits, you know, really impact the economics of underlying businesses. Mm. And so, I guess to take a step back, if I think about what my job entails, is public markets investors, especially when we, you act, you're actively manage, our job is to kind of you know take predictions or hypotheses that we think the market's underappreciating, overappreciating, and that's all about catching an inflection point. So whether it's catching an inflection point of a market growing faster than anticipated or slower than anticipated, or vice versa, you're not thinking about it where, you know, a, a technology that previously was not ready for commercial scale or was not at cost parity now reaches that. And so when you think about that with respect to climate, you know, there's a few different technologies that fall in a few different pockets, but you know, some of the older technologies like solar and wind that might fall in that former category where you're trying to get a view on how much faster or slower than market expectations are those sectors growing. And then some of these newer technologies where Things in the IRA, such as like the three dollars a kilogram hydrogen credit, or the economic incentives associated with purchasing an EV, can now really accelerate or you know put fuel on the fire, if you will, mm-hmm. in some of those markets. So I think like where we've spent a lot of time recently is in, in, some, in that inflection point of where you're about to see a rapid growth. I mean, so for example, EVs, right? Five plus years ago, it was less than a percent of global sales. I think it just eclipsed ten percent in 2022 and accelerating. In the U.S., it's still like six percent, so like a low penetration rate, but growing of fast. So we're, we try to spend time mapping out the different value chains and figuring out where we want to play. And so something like automotive, it's actually quite challenging. Um, if you think about from an OEM standpoint, right, I think like Tesla famously is always quoted as like, why would you start a car company? Because <laughs> all of them have gone bankrupt. Um, and that's a true point, right? So it's a really challenging to, to take a view on that. But what we'll do is we'll map out the entire value chain. Mm. And so for example, if we look at some of the EVs, we expect that to continue to grow. You know, we think it's really, really challenging to figure out which OEMs are going like, to, you know, Get, get a ton of value and be the best investable category. So you might look up the value chain. So the f- folks are providing the electrical architecture right. or are the tier one suppliers to these folks because we are very high conviction around the volume growth in EVs. Mm-hmm. And we think there might be better value capture there. So spending areas, times and areas like that, you know, some of the newer technologies like CCS um, or hydrogen are a little bit earlier stage. So we're trying to map more, you know, again, where do we think the economic value lies? Where's the bargaining power and spending time there? But that's kind of, you know, the, the main main areas that we're looking at. Nice. Yeah. Thanks for walking us through kind of the thought process. I think that that's super valuable in and of itself. And yeah, it's interesting to, you know, as you pointed out, there's some technologies like solar and wind that have really kind of gone through exponential efficiency gains and also growth in the past 10 years. And then it's kind of like you think about what's coming next in terms of are EVs going to be able to charge that same course and keep up some of the momentum that they've been accruing the last five years? Or is it something like hydrogen or CCS that maybe there's green shoots and a lot of people talking about it, but it's really hard to kind of hard to know like what whether and if you're on an S curve and whether you'll be able to take advantage of that and then investing in it is a whole nother question as you said like you can't just go and invest in an auto manufacturer and expect to necessarily make money because EV sales will grow uh, you got to think like upstream or downstream to something like charging and and how co- consumers are gonna interface with uh, or kind of the way that consumer behavior is going to change with EVs too. Yeah, totally, Nick. I think you hit a really strong point that I think is grossly underappreciated. Uh, anyone that follows me on Twitter probably knows I'm <laughs> annoying about it, but just because there is like significant secular momentum for mm-hmm. industries doesn't mean every company in that industry does well. But I think that's the point that you're getting at right here is, you know, I think everyone knows that solar and wind and EVs are, are going to do well. But like, especially at a, the more mature you get and the closer you get to like public markets, it's a lot closer. It's all about execution and, you know, that company's unique ability to generate high levels of return or cash flows. And that comes down to execution risk, go to market strategy, all that type of stuff. So I think it's a really strong point that you're making. Yeah. And I think that's something we've seen, you know, there's been a number of, you know, for one, there's EV and EV charging companies that are going bankrupt. Like it's not all roses by any means. Uh, There's a lot of, you know, SPACs that have taken one way for companies to go public that 
you know, haven't performed well once they've hit the public markets, especially like with respect to EVs, but not exclusively. So it's, yeah, it's definitely not as the exit. Yeah. Crazy stat on the SPACs is of the 70 or so that are the climate related, like I think BNF track, I think one of them or two of them were trading at the $10 per share price <laughs> that they like originally transacted at. So right. an idea of how that's been going. Yeah. I mean, and then talk about a challenge with a lot of, there's a lot of venture capital flowing into early stage climate tech now, but that's something that, you know, we'll have to track for the next five years. And people are still really going to have to figure out like, what's the model beyond series B or series C stage where these companies stay and remain profitable and continue to make a climate impact. But so much of that ability to continue making impact is predicated on, you know, still succeeding in the existing financial structures that we have. So TBD. Totally. It's actually one of the, you know, I'd say like exciting parts of my job, but probably the most challenging is that that last point that you mentioned where it's like, I always consider my job like marrying like intellectual curiosity with like intellectual honesty. Mm. And so like, like, don't get me wrong, right? I come at it from a climate perspective. I'm very passionate about the issue. I want to decarbonize the global economy. I think like, you know, my job's purview is to do that, but in a truly objective mm-hmm. and independently validated way, right? So I think a lot of times when you're dealing with some of these markets that you expect to grow and you want these companies to thrive, you have to objectively make the case why it's a good investment. And that's where you have to kind of, you know, have the sobering truths around like it's not going to be all up into the right curves. Mm-hmm. The energy transition will likely be very choppy and bumpy. Extraneous events like Russia invading Ukraine can completely change the trajectory of the global energy transition. Mm-hmm. And so I think these are important questions that climate investors need to ask themselves because in reality, like no, nothing is really perfect and nothing's ever really a smooth line. There's a lot of gray in the world. And so being able to marry those concepts, like I think my job I always measure like as a value success if I can put out a thesis and convince people if I removed all words of sustainability, climate, <laughs> et cetera, and they still thought it was a good investment opportunity, right? Because then that means I'm making the objective case towards it. And that's not always there, right? And like it'll be there sometimes and it won't. It's, it really depends on like the market's conversion, the company's doing well, uh, and the investor ability to pick up on that perception. Yeah. And without, you know, asking you to make any, you know, to advocate for any particular investments or anything like that, of course, like are there companies that come to mind when we think about this challenge of commercializing and growing that are adopting kind of unique approaches to keep kind of like the financial side of the business sustainable while they continue to drive their sustainability impact? Like, I'm just curious if there's examples of that that you've studied recently that you are just intrigued by. You don't necessarily have to think or you don't necessarily have to say like, oh, yeah, I think this is going to be a great investment. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, so at a caution of like mentioning specific names, I kind of like to talk through examples at, at, like without naming specific stocks. But for example, like if you look at like a semiconductor industry, I think this is like a really fascinating one because people intuitively don't always tie that to perhaps, you know, decarbonization or climate. Sure. But if you look at what's going on with a lot of these semiconductor companies, so there's been, you know, shortages of semiconductors for the past few years. And semiconductors historically are a very cyclical industry. So that means they, they go through periods where there's too much demand and they don't have enough. And then everything booms and people build a bunch of plants. And then they go through periods where they go to a downturn and they overbuild and then there's too much supply, all that. If you look at what's happened this past kind of, you know, earning season for a lot of the semiconductor companies mm-hmm. is that industrial and auto demand has been remarkably resilient in the face of every all the other end markets like consumer electronics and stuff PCs slowing down yeah and uh, a lot of that is driven from one the e- like, you know the transition from ice to EV in automotive and then you know the increased automation and electrification of industry mm. and I think that's really fascinating because that's like a decarbonization theme right true and true that's impacting semiconductor companies so like for example one of the investments we made in our portfolio was a company that had increasingly started to prune their other and market exposures other than a power and industrial, because that's where they have kind of the, their best IP. Interesting. And those markets are now are seeing more resilient and durable tailwinds, right? So that's increasingly, and, and they also have higher margins. So mm. they're reinvesting capital into the highest and fastest growing parts of their business at a higher margin. And then they also have technology IP that we think will allow them to succeed. So for example, in EVs, 
one of the ones that we invested in this company standing up a vertical supply chain related to this material silicon carbide mm-hmm. it pretty much allows for the, the, the long and short of it is it allows for like better performance characteristics that go into an ev that makes it as attractive such as like better heat resistance yeah. uh better energy density and so you know you can produce a lighter ev with better performance characteristics and so this is like considered in some ways like a really hot topic of interest for a lot of ev obms you're seeing increasingly triple digit um you know a hundred millions of dollars deals being signed with some of the auto ems and this company that we invested in that you know already had this like structural end market shift in their business is also investing in a leader in this space that is going to see increased benefit and interest as a result of the move to EVs mm. in automotive. And so that's an example of right of like one that may be unintuitive, but you know, we very much think is like doing approaching this market in a really interesting way where it's like a picks and shovels model, not directly created, but like that's where we can add a lot of values, like creating these or at least, you know, showing a lot of these like non-obvious relationships that are tied to some of these more secular tailwinds. Yeah, fascinating. No, it's cool to, to think about, yeah, I mean, of course, like something like semiconductors as it relates to the energy transition in EVs. But yeah, not definitely not the first thing that folks would think of to analyze and invest in when they're like, okay, I see that like EV sales are now more than 10% of global new car sales. Like, how do I get exposure to that? Definitely a creative way to do it. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's like important too, right? Because one of the challenges that we run into at the, at the public markets, and I'm sure it happens in the private markets, honestly, for that matter too, is, you know, returns of function of the price paid. And so if you have a lot of different folks like investing or chasing a particular theme, like you said, right, is um, it actually like bids up that lowest like price of entry, right? Or like if, in private markets, it might be valuation mm-hmm. in the public markets. It's the same thing, but like the stock price moving up, right? And so like, if you think about it, absent everything else, setters, pairs, all equal, it's, um, you know, a buyer and a seller transacted at a, a price that's like the market clearing price. And we know that this is the case that they're okay doing that in a normal, efficient market. We know that's sustainable. But when you have kind of some of these other trends where it's like, whether it's like subsidies or like this influx of capital where you have more people chasing a, a, something that there's more than the supply of, yeah. it like inflates that market clearing price, right? And so that becomes challenging then when you need to underwrite something like for 5, 10, 15 years, you don't really know what the, like the, the bottom clearing price is, right? So it inflates a lot of these assets. And so it becomes challenging because like, to your point, right? Like, hey, I do want exposure to solar and wind, but am I willing to pay like, you know, 50 times ne- next year's earnings or 100 times next year's or whatever the number is, right? To get exposure to that, like that really, really narrows my window of success and arguably is taking too much risk, right? And so you have to kind of almost find these non-obvious ways to play some of these themes just due to like, kind of the scarcity value, I guess, in certain markets. Yeah, hopefully some of what, well, it's, I mean, I'll start with this. Like, it seems like everyone and their mom is raising a climate fund, which is good. We need that. Like, thank <laughs> God for it. But you do re- raise a really interesting point of it can start to get pretty crowded in at least like well-trodden spaces that everyone's thinking about, or especially like in earlier stages. And so hopefully what that does is kind of what it sounds like you all are trying to do, where it's like we open our aperture a little bit and think about a lot of different applications that can have significant climate impact uh, and might not be getting, you know, or people might not be chasing investments in those areas as readily. But there's also a big risk to it. You know, like folks, we saw this with clean tech in the late aughts and early 2010s, where, you know, there was a big rush to invest in clean tech companies, and it didn't necessarily always translate into investor returns. So yeah, there's both push and pull positive and potential negative of this kind of influx of climate capital. And I think the way that, you know, we all think about that and manage that over the next five to 10 years is going to be super critical to make sure that it's not like climate tech now doesn't turn into clean tech from the last decade. Totally. Yeah. Can't reiterate that more. Yeah. And I guess, you know, to to open it up to you to think a little bit more about what you are seeing in the fundraising 
or the kind of like capital markets in general? Like, what are some other things that you've noted this year that are interesting? People talk about slowdown because there's macroeconomic headwinds for capital raising in general. Like, how do you see it? From your vantage point, like what are you seeing in capital markets for climate tech more broadly? Yeah, I think like the biggest question that many folks are asking themselves is kind of, you know, the secular momentum for climate and climate technologies against the backdrop of macroeconomic pressure, right? So, I mean, like the argument is that like, you know, sustainability is great for a lot of folks, especially when it's not like completely economically competitive. If if you're in a bull market environment, everyone's making money, et cetera. What happens if we enter a recessionary period? Or for example, like, you know, things like solar and, and equipment that need to be financed in a rising rate environment that become more expensive. Like, mm-hmm. do we still have the same strength in the underlying trends there? And I think that's a big question that most folks are trying to answer right now. Mm-hmm. And so if you look into like certain pockets of like, for example, like US residential solar, that's the question that everyone's asking right now is like, are rising rates going to completely slow down the, you know, the pace of new installations? There's like an interesting like, question to be said, or like, did the extension of the uh, ITC and PTC credits for solar and wind, will they actually slow down near term installs? Because now you have more visibility on, on the, you know, the longer tenure of the tax credits, and you're going to wait for a period where you're literally economically in a better position, right? Like, it's kind of an interesting question. So I think that's probably the biggest one. In terms of other capital markets activity, I mean, I think you're probably starting to see a little bit of a more narrower focus in certain funds. Like, so I think like, three years ago, or I guess for me, five years ago, you raise an ESG fund and you kind of have the flexibility to invest in a bunch of different sustainability type stuff, maybe climate stuff. I think like just by natural evolution of a market, you're getting more narrow and focused now where people are realizing there's all these problems when you ha- go too broad. So you're seeing like more specific, maybe like a water fund or like a environmental fund. And so I think you'll, I think that's a trend that'll probably stick around is that you're pro- like the LPs are going to increasingly want specific exposure to things and not like more broad. And so that's probably another one, but those are the ones that come off the top of my head. Yeah, and I think that's a, the, the second one you mentioned. I think that's a, a helpful trend. You know, it used to be that you'd raise, you know, like a venture fund for climate. Now you see funds ra- raising like funds for, you know, carbon removal specifically or ocean based yep. technologies specifically or what have you. And that should definitely help distribute capital more efficiently, I would hope, over the long term. So, yeah, that's definitely a welcome trend. And I was also just going to jump in on the point about the residential solar point is interesting too, because You've got like the financing side of it. And then you also have like the whole tech challenge side of it where penetration rates in some states are like so strong or were so strong for rooftop solar that like you got to a point where the grid couldn't even necessarily like continue to ingest more rooftop solar. So hopefully like significant advances in energy storage and and maybe more transition will unlock more of that. But yeah, then you start to see like we've got the financial side of the equation. We've got the tech side of the equation. There's a whole policy side of the equation. So Never any shortage of uh, of stuff to try and parse. <laughs> totally. Yeah. No, I mean, and I think I, I want to build on one of the points you said, because again, I think it's like, I mean, you're, you're making awesome points that I think people don't always pick up on, but like those like second and third order impacts of things over so you mentioned kind of like too much solar and then like the grid not being able to ingest it. I think that's like where it's really fascinating for us is like when we start to ask these questions about like, all right, like $50 billion of EV plants are going up mm-hmm. now, arguably if all these, if all the announcements get built, what are the second or third order impacts of that? Do they have enough skilled labor to do that? A lot of these are downstream capacity, like, you know, cell making facilities. Mm-hmm. So like, do we have enough refining capacity for the inputs? Or, or are we going to be in a situation where we're, you know, we're mining lithium in South America, then you need to ship it to Asia anyway, to get it refined <laughs> before it comes back here. Yeah. There's all these like interesting like bottlenecks that could emerge. And I think we like to spend a lot of time there because a lot of times that's where we find kind of these interesting opportunities, right? Where and like, that's where you get pricing power. And in these otherwise, like generally commodity type markets, like that's 
where you need to kind of understand and have a good appreciation of. And so it is really interesting because I know there's a bunch of reports talking about what the world would look like in 2040, 2050, <laughs> 2070, whatever. But like no one really knows, especially a lot of times when you're making forecasts on technologies that aren't at commercial scale right now or aren't deployed at, at a big enough uh, level. You know, there's going to be all these unforeseen things that we need to deal with. And I think those are the types of questions people should be asking themselves um, as they kind of look into these spaces and vectors. For sure. I mean, you can definitely... Google and find reports that will tell you that carbon removal will be a trillion dollar industry in 20 or 30 years. Hydrogen will be a trillion dollar industry in 20, 30 years. It'd be interesting to like go back to 2000 or 2005 and be like, what reports were, you know, what were they talking about as the future trillion dollar industries back then that didn't pan out or, or maybe, you know, they got some of them right, but <laughs> it's very hard. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah, they're the ones that we'll be wrong on, right? Or like, like we have, think have no shot at commercial success today and then we're one breakthrough away and then all of a sudden that becomes the the new technology, right? Exactly. Something else that you, um, I think that you're super, I see you as super knowledgeable about and have an interesting perspective on. There's been like a decent amount of political backlash to ESG in the US. And, you know, I haven't kept up with all of it because I think some of it is just sort of like talking heads doing what they will to rile people up. But <laughs> I mean, I think it is fair to say that ESG as a term has kind of taken it on the chin a little bit the last 12 months, 18 months. But, you know, the work that you do kind of crystallizes that it obviously still has an important role to play in the way that think people think about allocating money, especially in public markets. How have you kind of metabolized some of that conversation and how do you try to reframe it for people when you're, you know, not even inherently pitching, but just like cementing the value that ESG has to play for the next 10, 20, 30 years? Yeah, definitely. So when I break this landscape down, I mean, it's I think bravo on you for one, recognizing there's probably a lot of like noise, right? I think most people use any type of controversy to their own advantage. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of it can just be rooted down into the conflation of a few different terms. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, give me a, just a little bit of time here just to kind of define the terms and I'll explain the implication of them. But um, so the three main buckets, I would say, right, is are, are ESG versus sustainable investing versus impact investing. Mm -hmm. Those three things are far different from each other, but they're consistently framed as the same thing. And I think that's where a, source, a lot of the tension is sourced from. And so you think about ESG in its definitional sense, what it's meant to be is a framework for analysis that helps you understand companies better. And so what that basically is, is an appreciation that there's certain non-financial factors that can influence or be material to a business's operations and, and ability to generate attractive rates of return. And so if you think about that, like intuitively, that makes sense, right? So if you're a mining company and you're not worried about like your water procurement, like, like that could actually materially impact your operations. If you're a human capital oriented business and you're not focused on you know, diversity or strong retention practices, that's going to have material impacts on your business, right? And so like ESG was created as a framework to understand and systematically identify those issues where it's relevant to the business. I think it's in some cases turned into like a checkbox administrative type exercise, but in reality, when it's purely done in its definitional sense, it's meant to arrive at a better conclusion via that analysis. Mm. And that can go both ways, which people don't really get. Like we always assume ESG means good. <laughs> ESG definitionally doesn't really take a filter, right? It means that I'm trying to find, like an investor's job is to find mispriced risk and ESG risk can be overappreciated mm -hmm. or underappreciated, right? And so like, I think we oftentimes talk about things in underappreciated terms where it's like, oh, this company has a lot more risk than it's letting on, but that can be the vice versa, right? Like if you, for example, thought that, like you wanted to invest in an energy company and like you thought that the risk was overappreciated that we're going to like stop drilling tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And like you could, like that could be a, a worthwhile thesis for kind of ESG type investment. Whereas 
So some of these other themes like sustainable investing, that's more more investing in companies that are structurally positioned to benefit from a move to a more greener, fairer, healthier, safer community. Mm -hmm. So for example, like that could be like that semiconductor company that we invested in earlier. Another company we invested in is like an automotive supplier that, for example, it has content out of one out of every three and a half cars globally right now, but it has content in one of every two battery electric vehicles. So you're increasing your penetration rate. It also has three times the addressable content per vehicle and higher profitability. That's a business, right, that is seeing sustainable tailwinds higher addressable market, higher profit per unit. And that's as a result of this transition that's happening, regardless of your view on sustainability or not, right? So that, that would be like sustainable investing is you're taking advantage of these structural tailwinds that allow a business to be like durable, more visible, higher profitability, faster growth, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then finally, you have like impact investing, which is like investing like in a more of in a values-based way where you're trying to get to an objective outcome. Um, and so like you might measure that in some type of KPI where you're trying to change the board or you're trying to increase like financial access or hire a certain type of minority group, et cetera. But you have an explicit like outcome that you're solving for. And that's like a completely different ballgame than the former two, because you actually might not care as much about financial return in that case and more about your impact outcome. And so I think like a lot of the root issues are just people conflating those. And so I think if people stayed in like their swim lanes, for lack of a better term, like that would make a lot more sense. But as you know, and as you highlighted, people are going to use it to their own advantage. So I think sometimes blurring those helps people make their points if they're perhaps maybe against the idea yeah, no, I mean, the super valuable breakdown of the differences and, you know, some overlap between the three. I've definitely never heard it laid out in that, that clear of terms. So that in and of itself is valuable. I guess one question I have is for your part in the work that you do, where do you kind of locate yourself on the spectrum of those three? I mean, I'm sure that, you know, obviously, like as a framework, ESG is important in some of the analysis that you do. Um, what flows into your work and where do you kind of like see yourself on the position of that spectrum? Yeah, definitely. So I'd say like it's it's variable for all, all different types of funds, right? Like there's funds left classifications like no ESG, ESG integrated, sustainable themed, sustainable, I don't know, or impact labeled. So like a lot of the work that I do or the portfolios I specifically just so happen to be ESG integrated, the sustainable portfolio that I'm a co-portfolio manager on is sustainability focused, right? So that you know the outcome is to focus on companies that are positioned well to benefit from that structural shift. Right. And the other portfolios are ESG integrated. So like for us, or at least for me particularly in the objective of those portfolios, is that we think that additional ESG analysis is a you know a good part of a fundamental process. Mm-hmm. And so Again, I think it has to be material and, you know, in the pursuit of good returns. But it's fundamentally just recognizing that, hey, we're going to look at this whole host of factors, financial and non-financial, that can materially impact the thesis. And so it's just about being thorough, about being fundamental analysts. And so, you know, like a, a personal view of mine actually is like in five to 10 years from now, I think there's like a decent possibility that like we don't even consider like ESG as a separate like topic or a separate attribution type of thing. It's like it will just be a part of how investors approach this and that will be in different flavors, right? Like some people will be more thorough than others. But it fundamentally, again, it's just, if you're going back in your pursuit of good returns and a good investment process, that's kind of how we view it is just like, how can we incrementally add these things that will help us be better investors or be more informed? Yeah, I like that as the reframe. Like if you are doing your if you're really doing your diligence and doing serious analysis, whether in public markets or elsewhere, like you're probably already doing some flavor of like using the ESG framework. So that realization in and of itself like should help people pull back from this like, am I for ESG or anti-ESG? Like we're kind of like the people that are doing serious work in the space are, are definitely analyzing these factors as is. Totally. I think I forgot who said it or I read it recently, but someone said like 
as there's different flavors of investing, like, you know, there's growth, there's growth at a reasonable price, there's value, there's different frameworks, right? None of them are certainly right. Like you can each have your own preferences and they'll have different results. They'll be in favor or out of favor. Mm -hmm. Sustainable investing is kind of the same concept, right? Like you'll have different flavors. Like there might be, you know, no level of inclusion because you think that it actually harms returns and that's okay. And then you'll have ESG integrated, which you think is like a normal baseline. And then you have sustainable investing. Like it's just kind of the same like there's different flavors of that as well. And they'll emerge and kind of create their own, you know, characteristics and and market sizes over time. But it's like too early to kind of define that all as one thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Kind of zooming out now, like outside of your work, or could still be, you know, as part and parcel of the work that you do day to day. But I'm just curious, you know, I'm always interested what folks are like most excited about on like the frontier of climate tech and sustainability. Are there like companies or technologies in specific where you hear that question and you're like, yeah, I just like read about this company a week ago and they're doing some really cool shit because there's so much that flows into climate tech that I feel like everyone's always got like something different that they're paying attention to. Totally. Yeah. And this is so, I mean, I'm a climate tech nerd, right? So I'm always kind of digging it. And, and honestly, I'm, I'm going to plug your newsletter, even though I know anyone listens by already <laughs> subscribed, but uh, you do a good job of covering some of the newer technologies and companies that are, are working on cool stuff. But Appreciate that. for me, like the thing that I'm most uh, fascinated about recently, at least is um, synthetic biology. And like, I guess like, you know, the overly simplistic de- definition being like, you know, programming microbes or bacteria, feeding them some chemical concoction of either sugar or like waste product, like carbon monoxide, and then turning that into useful outputs, whether it's like molecules that you can then turn easily into other products or like directly into new products themselves. And so like companies like Lands Attack mm-hmm. or Solugen or Ginkgo Bioworks, like they, they kind of fall, Zomergen, they all fall in this category. And so like for me, it's like really interesting because it's like a new paradigm within like manufacturing and you're completely like displacing or like reinventing supply chains, right? Like mm-hmm. can you imagine if like we were able to find like plentiful, cheap, cost-effective inputs that you can do anywhere, that you can make anywhere and then like, you know, make it local too. Like you're decentralizing manufacturing, you're rethinking supply chains. You can potentially make, you know, products that are a lot less intensive on the built environment mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the resources used. And so like we're like in really early days of it, but I think like if I think about truly transformative tech, I mean, if I could turn the clock back, I'd be going and studying that, right? Like being a biologist nice. uh, in my undergrad. <laughs> but I think it's, I think that's really, really, really fascinating. I mean, there's like obviously barriers to that, like anything else. And there's technical risk and different market issues they need to overcome. But I think that that's one area I'm super excited about and following very closely. Yeah, no, I, I love anything that, you know, even more broadly kind of touches like the waste to value potential. And just thinking about, as you said, like, People, these folks aren't necessarily like wed to like, oh, we have to use this import to create this output. Like they're really just trying to create like a new way to manufacture things. And that could be like, you might make protein down the line. You might make industrial chemicals down the line. You know, the applications of it, we don't really know what the applications will be of it per se. And I think that's often where like the most opportunity is, is like someone's going to build a really powerful platform for lack of a better word. And then other folks will have the opportunity to be like, okay, well, we can also like use this for this, which is my area of expertise or someone else I know is area of expertise. So hopefully that stuff's all pretty exponential. Uh, yeah. And exponential is the right word, right? Because like, I think like a lot of times people get like fall into this like red herring that the world's going to look exactly like it does. Mm-hmm. It'll just be built in like a cleaner way. Like there's no way that happens just even from like a financial or economic standpoint. Like it just, there's, you won't be able to justify the cost of like ripping out every form of <laughs> iteration of something right now in this dirty reform and replacing it with a clean 
newer one, especially if it's more expensive. And so like, I think like these kind of systems change type things or like you recently shared a company that like is doing electric trailers that yeah. reduces the overall fuel burn in both diesel trucks or it can plug into like a commercial BEV later on. Like I think that systems level change or like kind of the ability to be flexible within the existing world as it's built today and kind of the newer one that we're moving towards is super powerful. And like you said, like they're building platforms that people can then build their businesses on. And there's all these like new unused like or unknown applications and we won't know until it's built. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think that's where I get really excited because that's like where you have the step change in like how do we think about, you know, the global flow of goods or how we produce and consume things. And that's where you really get like kind of that, that exponential advantage. And it's also a good or at least like a hopeful antidote to there's so much doom and gloom about like our inability to solve like structural systems level challenges. And so, I mean, as you said earlier, there's like a ton of work to do, but I'm on kind of this like the hell bad mission of introducing folks to stuff. There's like, you know, you can look at this and like be a little bit more optimistic about the future. And if nothing else, it's an incentive to keep pushing and, you know, keep fighting the good fight. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I think we've already introduced kind of the idea of, you know, there's significant differences between companies at a later stage and an earlier stage. It's very different to grow a business from, you know, zero to $1 million of revenue versus maybe five to 50. But let's go a little deeper on it. Like, what are some of the key challenges that you think about for those later stage businesses? And maybe we can also talk about like whether those are shifting in 2023 and how they've changed in the past couple of years. Definitely. I think like the question you're almost getting at a little bit is just like kind of the difference between what like an early stage or a growth stage climate investor might look at than in public. And, um, you know, I think all stages of investing ultimately come down to your time horizon and your level of uncertainty that you're okay with. And like the earlier stage you are, the longer your time horizon, the higher uncertainty, also your higher potential return, mm-hmm. which you're paid for. But then the later that you get, it's much more about, you know, actual execution. Your time horizon is a lot narrower and your risk uncertainty is a lot, capacity is a lot lower. And so early stage investors are typically kind of focused on how do I de-risk the technology? How do I get to the next commercial milestone? How do I get more traction with customers? Right. How good is the team? Exactly. It might That might be all that's needed for the next round. You're not necessarily worried exactly yet about the optimizing margins or your capital allocation. The closer you get to public markets and when you're in public markets, that's almost like becomes the entire focus, right? Because your time horizon oftentimes could be a year, three years, five years, and you need to have really strong conviction that this company can generate you know, significant cash flow. If you think about what a stock price is, it's, it's the market's perception on the company's ability to generate future cash flow. So you mm-hmm. need to have an idea of what does a steady state growth look like for the business? What does steady state margins look like? Is that enough to cover all the overhead and all these other compensation related costs? And then what does that look like from a free cash flow perspective? And then can they deploy that within the business or back to shareholders uh, in an accretive way? Mm-hmm. And so that comes down to like, you know, how do they think about investing? How do they think about compounding capital? Do they have a product beyond the current product? You know, like how do they create this as, as a platform business? And like, do they have sustainable competitive advantages? And so I think like when you get to like the public markets, I think a lot of times we're it's a lot more like traditional financial analysis around mm-hmm. optimizing the margins, optimizing capital allocation, dissecting the business strategy, and less about kind of the the broader macro momentum or or new technology disruption potential. It's just like how do you generate cash flow and can you do that today or, or near term? And so that's like the biggest probably like the maturity. And that, I think in periods where like you know the last five years, last ten years was crazy, was really in this <laughs> insane bull market where you know you had. 0% interest rate, like you had willingness to go further out on the risk right. curve, right? Because, you had to. Yeah, you had to, right? To chase returns. And so now we've adjusted that and changed that paradigm. And that's why you see a lot of these high growth names are struggling a little mm-hmm. bit more because they are like five, 10 year stories and people don't feel as comfortable underwriting that in today's environment than not. And so that's probably the biggest change that's happened. And hopefully, I mean, I think we often talk about the higher rate environment and the headwind that that can present ec- economically 
kind of as like a bad thing or like that's just like the impression people get from it. But hopefully it also translates to like if you have a higher hurdle rate for your capital, like you are pushed to be more productive and to be more parsimonious and discriminating. So hopefully like there's also like good things that come from that. We invest in stuff that is more essential for lack of a neater way to present that idea. Totally. It's like corny, but like the whole diamonds are made under pressure mm. thing is, is so true. I mean, like some of the best businesses are built in some of the most challenging economic periods, right? Right. Because they're forced to be nimble with resources and, and agile and they can't afford to waste it. And so that's like when you sometimes build some of the best businesses. And hopefully a little more investing in infrastructure and less than, you know, like 15 minute grocery delivery, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> if I had a, you know, a dime for every time a VC funded a grocery delivery company, huh? Yeah, that's the running joke from 2021 or 2022. But, you know, there's especially in the circles that we swim in, there's lots of serious folks that are pretty much exclusively thinking about serious problems. So it's not to, yeah, it's not to slander the, the role of the venture capitalist. <laughs> totally. All right. Well, you know, last call, anything else could be on the, we kind of started the conversation with IRA, but it could be on the policy front. Anything else that, you know, you've been keenly paying attention to or that you think folks are, or that you think especially like not enough folks are paying attention to that comes to mind? Yeah, I think we, we hit on a bunch of them with the second and third order effects. I mean, I think like the obvious one that people are talking about, so I don't want to pretend like it's not a non-issue, mm-hmm. but I don't think enough people are talking about it, is like the difficulty in building stuff, yeah. right? Like the West has gotten a lot harder to build big projects and stuff. And it's challenging, right? Because technology can always bring costs down, but building stuff is not getting cheaper or yeah. easier. And so like permitting, building execution, things like that, like those are things that we're going to need to solve because we need to build you know, a potentially a grid if we electrify everything two to three times bigger than the one today, right? And so we're really going to need to figure those issues out. I mean, we, we're probably need some type of permitting legislative change right. here in the next few years too. Um, otherwise, a lot of the benefits from the IRA won't be unlocked per different analyses like Princeton Net Zero and all that. But I think that's kind of the biggest one that people need to pay attention to. And that's the next shoe, proverbial shoe to drop that people are waiting for. Yeah, that's something that I want to spend a little more time looking into too, because there's definitely a legislative component to it. It's like, what's the actual process for these projects to get permitted and go through environmental review and get built? Then there's a whole question of like, sometimes folks get really caught up in blaming like individual communities that, and it is a challenge, you know, like the kind of the not in my backyard idea. And there is like also like grassroots activism against like solar and wind projects in some parts of the country. So there's like the legislative component, there's like a community component, then there's a whole like financing and how do you actually like get the capital to flow towards these solutions. So that's definitely something that, you know, to your point, I need to kind of bone up on a little bit more. It's like, what are all the different issues that need to be solved and which ones are maybe the most critical to go after first to unlock the other ones? Yeah, I'd say it's beyond us too, right? I'm sure policymakers are trying to get smart on that and stuff too. I think everyone's trying to get their heads around it. Yeah, part of me thinks I want it. Like part of me had this crazy idea is like create a clothing line, sustainable, of course, it's like, yes, in my backyard and just like, create like a cultural (laughs) movement around that but i'm not sure if that's like even the biggest issue compared to like the policy side of things but i don't know could be interesting there's only one way to find out you know is just just to do it like get the get the grassroots activism in favor of just like building a ton of massive new infrastructure somehow (laughs) be a fun side project (laughs) that'd be awesome i'm wishing you luck yeah uh, we'll see if i have any time for that in any case, man, it's been awesome having you on and, and getting your perspective. I'm sure we'll do it again soon in six months or a year. And we'll have a lot of things that we were right about on this podcast and probably some that we were wrong about too. And we can do a, a postmortem. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much, Nick. It's such a pleasure. And yeah, look forward to the next time. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech. Make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.